all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. And Happy New Year. This is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens. And today, as we are looking forward to all that 2021 holds, we thought it would be great to talk about our eyes. You guys will catch that in about five minutes. Um, but as we are looking forward to the new year, see what I did here? Anyway, um, we are joined by retinal specialist, Dr. Kushbu Agarwal, who is an ophthalmologist at North Mississippi Medical Center. Um, it is January, guys. We've been waiting for this. 2020 is now at an end. And um, we are also going to pay attention to glaucoma because January, in addition to being the first month not in 2020, um, it is also um, Glaucoma Awareness Month. So we will also, however, um, in addition to information about glaucoma and who's at risk and how it's diagnosed and what treatments exist, um, we also will be happy to take any of your questions and comments about your eyes. As you know, in the past year of the pandemic, a lot of people have had limited access to healthcare, whether it's by minimizing visits and um, dealing with things that may not necessarily be emergencies in a more delayed fashion. So this is an opportunity for you to kind of get a direct line to one of those people that sometimes may be difficult to get in with. Um, so we will also take questions about your eyes, vision issues, um, love to answer anything about your retina if you got questions about that, um, and any other uh, ophthalmologic type questions you may have. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always send us an email to women at mpbonline.org. We are still doing our socially distanced and responsible remote broadcasts. So that does kind of limit us technologically with respect to being able to get um, the emails out um, on the air. But if you have a question, you can send it in and we will definitely still respond to those emails in time. So you will get a response. Um, it just may not necessarily be on the air. Um, we are still taking live phone calls, so please make sure if you have any questions or comments that you can give us a call. And P.S., if you just want to call and talk about what your plans are, what you're looking forward to in the new year, we would be happy to hear from you in that regard as well. I think there's been enough um, angst, anxiety, and negative news over the past few months. And so um, if anybody just wants to share anything positive, we are happy to entertain positivity and positive thoughts. Um, so without further ado, we will move along to our distinguished guest today. Um, Dr. Eckwald, good morning and welcome. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be back again. I know. And this is like, so you got a quick turnaround. So yeah. um, we were fortunate enough to have you as a guest um, right before, I guess, the, the holidays kind of picked up and um, are so lucky to have you back again um, with us to be able to talk about this very important topic. But for those people who might have missed um, your broadcast the last time, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from and what you do. So I'm an ophthalmologist uh, trained in retina surgery, actually. I grew up in Jackson, went to medical school here, and then uh, did my training across the country at the University of Chicago and the Mayo Clinic, and then at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary in Manhattan. And once I was done with my fellowship, we, my family and I moved down to Tupelo, and I started a practice there with the hospital, um, specifically for retina surgery, because there was no retina surgeon in the area at that time. And um, I still have a practice there. Um, I'm married to a physician as well. He's an emergency room physician. And I have three little kids. They're um, one, three, and five. And we live in Jackson now, but I do see patients there. And I've enjoyed getting to um, be on this show to sort of get the word out on eye diseases in general, because there's a lot of um, stuff that we just don't know as, as lay people in the public. And I'd rather we have good information than... Um, you know, Googled bad information. So yeah. I'm here for any questions and concerns. And I think, um, I'm glad you said that because um, I find that usually it's the things that we use the most that we kind of, I guess, take for granted, right? Um, and so a lot of people don't necessarily think about um, their eyes until all of a sudden something's not working right, right? Yes. Uh, and right. then all of a sudden, right. it's kind of one of those things where everything's fine until it's not. Um, and, you know, I think some people may even be a little confused about the difference between an ophthalmologist and, say, for example, an optometrist. Like, where do you go? Who performs what types of procedures? Or if you have a concern or question, like, where's the most appropriate place to go? So can you kind of describe just for the folks who, who are not really familiar what the difference between an ophthalmologist and an optometrist is? Yeah, so that's a great question, and unfortunately, there's not always a whole lot of transparency there, but in general, there's a difference in our training. So an optometrist, um, usually after college, will go to optometry school for a few years and then graduate and be able to either go on into a specified fellowship of a certain degree or practice in a general optometry or ophthalmology practice even. And an ophthalmologist will, after four years of college, go through four years of medical school and one year of a surgical internship, and then three years of an ophthalmology residency. And then should we choose to specialize, whether it's glaucoma, like we're going to talk about today, or retina, or cornea, or neuro, or pediatrics, those specialties all range from another one to four or five years after residency. Um, and then we, you know, then we're out in the world and um, the other big difference is going to be in our scope of practice. So in general, I would say if it's sort of your first introduction is getting your eyes checked or you just need a glasses checkup um, or some basic medical management, an, op an optometrist office is good to start with. And generally, they can refer someone out to see a specific ophthalmologist or even a general ophthalmologist should they need any sort of procedure. Um, ideally, you want to see an ophthalmologist if you do need any sort of laser procedure, injections in your eyes or any type of surgery. Um, and within ophthalmology, of course, there's different specialties. And so depending on what you need, you want to get to that specialist to treat you. Gotcha. Um, so, so if you're a person who say you just, um, you need glasses 
or you you know you're you're noticing that you're having difficulty seeing things far away. Um, optometrist is acceptable. Um, that, I think that's acceptable to just get your foot in the door, basically, to get a general eye checkup. Nowadays, the technology is so advanced that even a lot of the optometry offices have the equipment that we might be using in an ophthalmology office to really fine tune and check the details on you know, specifics like your optic nerve, your eye pressure, things like that. And then should you need any more advanced care, um, they're great about referring out to us for us to provide that advanced care. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for that clarity. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I mentioned today, oh guys, really quickly, the number one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one 672 The phone lines are open um, and we are going to just kind of dive right in and talk about glaucoma. So it, I thought it was interesting, January, um, Glaucoma Awareness Month. And I, that's probably something that... Um, people probably don't know a whole lot about. So as I was doing the research um, in preparation for the show, I was surprised to find how many people have it. I mean, the mm -hmm. numbers say mm -hmm. around, around 3 million Americans are living with it. And the majority of those are middle-aged around 40 or um, above. And But there are even children who are born with it. So there's like a genital form of glaucoma. Yes. As well. mm -hmm. um, so I was surprised for it to be that prevalent that there's not really a whole lot more that people know about it. I was laughing because I thought, well, how much do I really know about glaucoma? Yeah. Well, it yeah. does involve the eye. I do know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what exactly is glaucoma and why is it important? So first of all, I just want to mention that even though it's not my specialty specifically, um, it is something I've been trained to diagnose and treat to a certain extent and also something that often coexists with retinal diseases that I see and treat every day, and often I'm required to manage them medically and sometimes surgically. So glaucoma, by definition, is a group of diseases with two common features. One is optic neuropathy, so some sort of dysfunction or damage or defect of the optic nerve. And then the second feature is visual field loss, so some sort of um, basically a part of your field of vision that is missing. Um, and speaking to the prevalence issue, so there's two big things that I'm hoping someone will take away from this, which is glaucoma is, is very common. It's the second leading cause of blindness worldwide after cataracts. So let that sink in. The second leading cause of blindness worldwide after cataracts, knowing the cataracts are treatable. We take them out and we put a lens in. And so we can fix that first cause but glaucoma is generally irreversible. But the sooner that we see it, the better treatment options there are. The second fact that's really important is that glaucoma is the leading cause of irreversible blindness in African-Americans. So this, unfortunately, like many things that have a racial disparity in our country, is one of those diseases that um, does affect African-Americans slightly more than other populations. So, so it's... Mm -hmm. You know... So do they have any idea or has there been any um, speculation as to why is there something unique about the eyeball of an African-American person yeah. compared to a person of a different ethnicity? Or does it seem to be more related to other issues that may be, I don't know, social determinants or access to care and those kinds of things? Is it about being tied to other comorbidities that may be more prevalent in that population. What do they think is the reason why we see those disparities? So it's it's just about everything you mentioned. 
Um, one is there's definitely a stronger family history, but like we know, it's not, you know, like when we look at obesity, for instance, it's not necessarily that the obesity runs in the family, it's the diet that runs in the family, we say often. So when we look at the family history, a lot of times it is either environmental factors or certain comorbidities that may run in the family, like diabetes or hypertension, um, that also can contribute to different types of glaucoma. So it is multifactorial in that sense. And some of it, of course, is access to care because glaucoma is sort of a sort of like hypertension in the sense that it's this silent, painless disease. Um, and people who may not have access to care or may not um, you know, have the infrastructure within their within their society or the resources or the finances to even get to an optometrist or to get to an ophthalmologist to determine if they have any sort of eye condition by the time they're seeing somebody, it may be too late. So unfortunately, there are a lot of factors that go into that fact. Yeah, and those things are usually, it's very rare. Yeah, it's very rarely just one particular thing, but a a very unique, troublesome, uh, I guess, combination of a lot of different things that I think contribute to that. But I think that sometimes when, when we throw that out there, it's oftentimes good to kind of think about the why or to kind yeah, of ask something mm-hmm. as opposed to just making assumptions that that's just something that people just have to deal with and that there actually may be some things that that could definitely um, influence that. We're going to, um, we'll go some phone lines. We have another call. We're going to hear from Kevin in Biloxi. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. Hey, how are you? I am doing well. I have a question concerning iritis. Iritis? Okay. I, yeah. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, iritis. Now, a little bit of a backstory. I have severe, uncontrollable diabetes. Now, is my iritis um, part of my diabetes? I mean, am I am I going to suffer this the rest of my life? I mean, he gave me steroids, but the pain is still there. I mean, there's really nothing to treat the underlying, the underlying disease of iritis or are steroids the only option? So, so first of all, steroids are not the only option, but second of all, um, you know, I think a little more investigation is warranted. So first of all, iritis, as you know, is an inflammation of the iris, which is the colored part of your eye. Um, typically people will have eye pain or light sensitivity, headaches, decreased vision, things like that. Um, but there can be a lot of causes. So sometimes it's from an infection in the eye. You know, if we have a conjunctivitis that can lead to iritis or some other sort of infection like shingles, for example, can cause it. Um, any sort of injury to the eye, like if you ever were um, using any like like welding or using any medical components, a little piece got lodged in your eye, can cause a little uh, local inflammation uh, and injury can cause that. And then any, um, so there's some systemic diseases, some diseases, even including diabetes that can cause iritis, but there are some treatment options. So for example, um, in my clinic, I will see patients with iritis that may be related to diabetes, but there's a few other factors along the way that are important. One is, are there some abnormal blood vessels that are growing as a result of the diabetes? And is that contributing to the iritis? And if so, there are options like injections in the eye, Um, or other medications to keep the eye comfortable. 
Um, depending on what the cause of your iritis is, whether it is completely diabetes or whether there is some sort of other autoimmune component like Sjogren's or lupus, for example, um, certain systemic medications like pills or injections that you take by mouth or injections you get elsewhere can also help control the inflammation. Okay. But um, I have I have had a CBC done and, you know, I've been checked for any sort of uh, diseases and bacteria mm-hmm. and all of that is negative. He's, he's, he's boiled it down to strictly diabetes, you know, as the cause, as the underlying okay. cause. Now, my, my question is, are, are steroids the only way to treat it? Or could, could I'm thinking, you know, possibly a, a good, um, you know, a good, antibiotic or something. I mean, I've got to do something about this pain. This is horrible. Yeah, I can, I can sense how frustrated you are with the pain. So if it is, if it is 100% related to diabetes, um, you may be someone that qualifies for injections in the eye. Now the injections help calm down the abnormal blood vessel growth that we see with diabetes. And as a result, the inflammation in the eye is lessened. It's reduced. And as a result of that, the pain is lessened. So steroid drops may not be 100% effective for you, it sounds like, and we may have to move to something a little more invasive. Um, so I would I would throw that question to your ophthalmologist that treats you, or um, if you have a retina specialist, for example, that treats you, that's something, that's a uh, procedure they can offer you as well, if if your eye warrants it. I will, I will investigate more, more treatment options. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for your call, Kevin. So really quickly, Dr. Agarwal, do you, does controlling, could potentially having better control of his diabetes actually help Kevin with his iritis or is that going to be separate and, you know, it's not one of those things that actually is worsened by diabetes um, control, like diabetes control doesn't really have that much of an impact on it. So it can absolutely help, 100%. Um, like I tell my patients, diabetes affects every single part of your body in some ways more than others. And what it does in the eye in particular is that the blood vessels in the eye are lined with certain types of cells and the diabetes affects those types of cells. So all the blood vessels start to break down. They can cause different types of problems in different eyes, but in general, there's some sort of broad categories of problems that we see like inflammation, high pressure, bleeding, uh, retinal detachments, those sorts of things. And as someone works to improve control of their diabetes and keep the blood sugar glucose levels regulated, those blood vessels also become healthier and those specific types of blood cells that are affected also become stronger. So yes, um, a lot of my patients uh, are noticing that. And once they start seeing the results in terms of either less injections, fewer injections, less frequent injections, less lasers, less surgeries, they, they really make um, a difference and it impacts their whole life. Yeah. Well, uh, Kevin, best of luck to you. I do hope that you, A, um, have great control of your diabetes because that's going to add a lot of time to your life, but hopefully you'll have some relief from the discomfort um, that you're experiencing right now. We're going to stay on the phone lines um, before we take our next break, and we're going to hear from Tom, who's calling us from Natchez. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. What's your question? I appreciate your show. And, uh, 
I'm 63 years old or young, however you want to say it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for about 10 years, I've, I've, I've been wearing these dollar store magnifying glasses. Uh, I want to know, is, is that damaging to your eyes? No, it's not. Um, you know, anything that you can do to help you see a little better, it's fine to do. The The only population we really worry about that is really with children um, because their brain gets used to seeing different images that are not correct. Um, but at this point, if the readers are helping you magnify or, or read your material uh, easier, then that's fine. That's fine to do. At a certain age, given your age, you may find that they're not quite as effective. Um, and at that point, you know, you'd want to get into your general ophthalmologist, get checked for either prescription glasses or potentially talk about cataract surgery. Okay. okay. Well, I, just, awesome. uh, I, I wanted to make sure I'm not hurting myself. No, Tom, that's a great, I mean, you, you raise a good question because you know what the, you know what, um, what the grandfather, what your grandparents <laughs> say, they always say that once you start yeah. wearing them, it's worse, right? Like once you wear them, you have to have them. And then next thing you know, you go to the dollar store and first you can get those one or 1.5s. The next thing you know, you have to get the 2.0 or then all of a sudden well, those uh, stop working. So, um, I'm I think up, that's I'm a really up to great the question. they got to read. <laughs> So I think that, that's that's not so bad. I've seen some that go up to like five. So um, you you got a little ways to go. But I think that, you know, that's one of the things that um, I'm learning from my ophthalmology and optometry friends is that that is one of the gifts of longevity um, mm -hmm. is <laughs> is your acquaintance <laughs> with um, with reading glasses and, and, and other kinds of little assisted devices, so to speak. Okay. All right. Well, you have well, a great thanks, day. Big. Thanks so much for calling. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, guys, it's time for us to take our first break of the hour. We have really covered, I think, a lot of ground. Um, again, we are here with our uh, guest, Dr. Agarwal, who's an ophthalmologist. We're talking about glaucoma, but you know what? We're also talking about everything else about your eye, any kind of eye disease, questions, my diabetics, my hypertensives, you're worried about your eyes, now's your chance. Um, we are going to take a break and be right back after this. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for being with us. This is Southern Remedy for Women, where we are talking about glaucoma. January is Glaucoma Awareness Month. This is January, and we are learning about the sight stealing disease of glaucoma. Um, are you at risk? What are the risk factors? Um, what kinds of things are done for treatment? Um, really important information. And we know that it is a cause of blindness. Um, 
And people don't think about that, I don't think, very often. But, I mean, it's right behind cataracts. So be mindful. Um, this is out there. Um, and you need to know whether or not, <coughs> excuse me, this is something that could potentially affect you. Um, we've had quite a few callers already. Our phone lines are open. The number is one mpb ring That's one 672 And we um, are going to go directly to our phone lines and hear from Rebecca, who's calling us from the coast, Gulfport, Mississippi. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, y'all. How are you doing? We're doing great. Good. How are you? We're doing fine, but I've called my friends in Wisconsin, told them their weather is drunken down here on the coast and they need to come get it. <laughs> yeah, because this, this is unseasonably cool for us, I think. It is. I've been recently diagnosed with macular degeneration, and it's it's holding steady at the point, but I'm wondering if you have a vitamin that you prefer over other ones because we're having an argument on the family, whether to take Preservision or Octavite or Macuvision or whatever it is, you know. So that's a, that's a good question because I get that a lot. But my recommendation is, number one, choose something that says AREDS2 on it. So the AREDS stands for Age-Related Eye Disease Study. There were, um, there, were, there were two studies done. Basically, the original one was AREDS, which came out with a certain uh, formula combination for the medications. And then the study was further enhanced, and the second recommendation came out, which is the AREDS2. So that's essentially the newer, more optimized formula. So any one of those brands which say AREDS2 is fine to pick, um, in general, I don't have a preference or a recommendation for which brand. It's honestly which one you can afford, which one you will get, and which one you can tolerate. So if it's something you have to travel to a special store for to get and it's uh, out of your budget, then don't get it. Get the one that's cheaper and get and make sure you get one that you can tolerate. Some of them tend to cause a little more stomach upset with certain patients and others. So if you try one out and it really just doesn't agree with you, then then go for another one. But as long as it says AREDS 2, then that's all that matters. That's great. Thanks you ever so much. You're welcome. Um, so with macular degeneration, um, so what's the what's the story about the vitamins? How does it help? So the so in general, macular degeneration, um, you know, it's a disease that affects once again the elderly. As you get older, your the the health of your retina is just not quite as good, and you're not able to. Um, see as well. You tend to lose um, parts of your vision as you get older. There's two general categories. There's a dry and a wet type. And 90% of people that have it typically have the dry type, which is the type that as you get older, you may notice some uh, slow progressive vision loss. The other 10% that have macular degeneration have the wet type, which is the type that it gets to the point where your retina is so unhealthy, you start to sprout some abnormal blood vessels that tend to leak fluid and protein and such, and you need regular injections in the eyes to help calm down, repair those blood vessels. So the vitamins come into play with generally the dry type of macular degeneration because they help uh, reduce your chances of progressing from the dry to the wet type over time. So it's really important that if you are diagnosed with early age-related macular degeneration, you do start the vitamins and you take them regularly because it has been shown to reduce your risk of developing the wet type of macular degeneration by over 20%. So we are doing a lot of, we've been touching a lot on age and the yes. effects of aging on your eyes. How often should people get eye exams? 
So, you know, there's no universal recommendations that I know of on when to start and, and generally how frequently to go. But typically when we are teenagers, the things that we are going to need are possibly some prescription eyeglasses or contact prescriptions, um, unless you fall into the category of having certain specific eye diseases like certain types of glaucoma or some cataracts to develop as you're a kid and you have to be followed for those regularly. And then typically when we hit about 40, we develop something called presbyopia. This happens to almost everybody, whereby the muscles in the eye that help you focus and help you read, they're just not quite as strong. And so we need reading glasses or we need uh, prescription glasses that we didn't need before. So in general, a lot of patients will sort of enter the optometry ophthalmology practice around that age, seeking some sort of care for their eyes, because now something is different than it used to be. And from that point onwards, typically around 60s, we'll also see a surge in patients because now these patients have been referred for uh, cataract evaluation. Um, and then if they're referred for any specific conditions, um, depending on what they have, you know, the specialist will get them on their schedule for every three months or every six months or every year, uh, depending on, you know, what the conditions are. But I would say in general, when you start noticing those changes, if you're on 40 or so, you should get in for an evaluation and at that time, they can usually do a comprehensive exam and see if you need further care and further treatment. Awesome. So next, we are going to stay on our phone lines and hear um, from John, who's calling from Osaka. Good morning, John. Uh, good morning. What's your uh, question? Uh, well, this is uh, slightly off topic, but uh, I thought y'all might have some insight to it. With the new COVID variation, the mutation. They're saying that they're 50 to 70% more contagious. Why? And how do you need to react to that? Ooh, I think, um, now that's a really great question. Um, and I would, I would submit to you that COVID is probably on topic for just about everything that happens these days. Um, you know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that we know, um, know enough to really understand. I don't know if it is, um, if it's, if there's been enough to say that it's, it hangs around a little bit longer and so it could be picked up more quickly or if it is more contagious because it has the capacity to travel more aerosolized or what have you. I mean, it could be any number of things. I've not read anything to this point that has, I think what is happening is we're getting news that is being reported as the scientists are discovering it. Um, and so a lot of the why we probably haven't had the opportunity to, to, to work out. I think they are definitely um, looking at now that we have the capacity to do so when we're um, looking at the, the genetic structure of the actual virus. Um, and that may provide some insight as to how it behaves. Um, but I don't know that I don't know that we know the answer to why um, it's more contagious. Um, the next the next part of your question, um, Dr. Agarwal, you can feel free to, to chime in wherever. But I think the um, the the second part is you know what to do about it. I think that what to do about it is the same thing that we know at this point, which is you know minimizing exposures, wiping down surfaces washing our hands, um, minimizing aerosolizing things, wearing our masks, all of those things that we've done and socially distancing are still going to be the best um, ways to prevent 
um, spread. I mean, that's kind of the limitation, as, as we know right now, of what we can do. And fortunately, now we have the benefit of um, adding vaccination to that. Um, as a matter of fact, I got my my second shot this morning. Yay. And Dr. Brown's not with us today because she went to get her second shot. So um, we are officially we're vaccinated. <laughs> um, and I think that's the, that's the I'm, best I'm trying to get mine. Well, good. And you know what? There are lots of people who are in line. And I think that's, you know, the supply chain issue is one that we anticipated. Um, but, you know, there I'm glad that there are people who are lined up to get it um, because there are still some people who are not quite comfortable. Um, but I know. The, I talk is, to people the only all way the we're going to get over it is with that. So I'll, I I'll just add about the, the new strain. I know they, they will never get it. Yeah, and, and there are some who, I mean, and, and you know, there are people who have still to this day never gotten a flu shot. I mean, so it is definitely a, a personal choice what people take in and, and, and put into their bodies and how they feel about that. Um, and, you know, I, but we're in a pandemic and I just, you know, from a, the standpoint of a healthcare professional and a person who has a family um, who I want to do everything I can to protect. Um, that was the choice that I made, but I understand that there are a lot of people out there who are still skeptical and kind of want to be a little bit more methodical um, in, in their approach. Um, we, I'm encouraging it, um, and that's why I decided to lead by example. Um, but again, it is a personal decision. And I'm okay, sad about you. the new strain you had asked about, you know, what makes it more contagious. Um, and I'm glad that you brought up COVID because it actually does pertain to ophthalmology as well. But, you know, like any virus, it mutates as it moves from population to population. And one of the changes in this particular strain is, is the change of the proteins that are attached to it. And these proteins help attach them, help attach the virus to different cells in your body. So it's, um, you know, maybe your nose, maybe others of your body. And it is something, COVID is something that can be transmitted through the eye in the sense that, you know, when you sneeze or you cough, there's virus particles that can attach to your eye, to the conjunctiva, to the white space of your eye. Or if you're touching something, you know, that we know COVID can live on surfaces to a certain amount, you touch something and then rub your eye, you get into your eye. So you'll, you may notice that as you go to an ophthalmology office, you know, for certainly, certainly I do, we wear eye shields because there is noted to be eye to eye transmission as well, as well as transmission through the eyelashes uh, as well. And, you know, I'll just take a brief moment to recognize uh, in, in China, Dr. Li Wenlang, who initially was one of the first people to notice that there was a new virus coming through and, you know, brought it to light. And ultimately, it was determined that he himself contracted the virus while he was uh, treating a patient with glaucoma, actually. John, you still there? Question. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for your call and for asking that question. I mean, I think it's um, that's something that everybody's talking about, that the new strain has been found now in the U.S. And um, I'm sure that we will not be the, that that won't be the only it won't be localized to one area. It'll probably spread quickly. So I just think it just reminds us that we need to continue to be vigilant. Um, this is going to be a, it's going to be a fight for the long haul and um, not something that's just a really quick fix. Um, so I think that just encourages everybody or reinforces the need to just stay vigilant and do the best you can. Here's the thing that I think is really funny, though. Um, and uh, Dr. Agarwal, you might you might get this because my kids are my kids were in school. And one of the things that I've noticed, I have one I have a child who's been in school since August in person. 
Um, and he hasn't had a single solitary illness the whole entire time. And, you know, as medical professionals, we we are reared in this environment of always hand washing and talking about hand washing in between patients and from room to room and all those things. And we've heard about that universal precautions and all these other things that are such a part of our culture in a hospital. But the fact that, you know, we had accepted that when you send a kid to daycare, everybody's going to get sick. We had accepted that when you go to school, that children are going to pass things to each other. And what we found is that actually with a little bit of vigilance, um, which, you know, COVID has kind of been a little bit more extreme, but by enacting these same basic principles, none of this is brand new. Um, even the mask wearing, I mean, that that was employed back in the early 1900s. So like, we know that those things have worked. And just by, by doing them consistently, um, we've been able to make differences. And now all of a sudden things like common colds and flu and all those other things aren't spreading with the rapidity that we were seeing them do in the past, which I think is just very interesting um, because I just made it a foregone conclusion that by January, I, the kids were going to have had colds mm -hmm. or snuffles or whatever, at least three or four times by this point. Um, and that just hasn't been the case. So, I mean, we know that this stuff, it, it may not, it may not stop everything, but, but it works. Um, now we're going to go to the phone lines again to hear from Chuck, who's calling us from Cleveland. Thanks for your patience, Chuck. Good morning. Uh, good morning, ladies. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, with regard to the last uh, caller, uh, I had heard that the, the reason these um, new variants of COVID or coronavirus are more contagious is because the uh, spike protein interaction is stronger, so the the virus can attach better and have you know more time to transfer its materials into the cells. So that makes that's why they're more uh, infective. I'm I'm not a medical professional, by the way, but that's what I read in a couple of articles. Chuck, you uh, don't have to be a medical professional to be able to spread good information. Cause yeah, <laughs> yeah, the the uh, the, the spike protein uh, or the spike interacts with the cell more strongly, so it binds more strongly, and therefore it, you're more easily infected. Awesome, uh, that's great. I had not I had not heard that. So thank yeah. you so much for that. That's yeah. what I love about this show. Our listeners, you guys, you guys stay on top of it. Um, so I appreciate that. Thanks so much for sharing. Um, we still have a couple of more callers on the line. We're going to hear from Joseph, who's calling us from Woodville. Good morning. Well, good morning to you, too, y'all, ladies. <laughs> How and you doing, Joseph? I'm doing pretty good so far. And and I, I, my question is, see, I love to drink my beer. And I want to do that have anything to do with my glaucoma. And... And I go to the doctor when I'm when my appointment is and and I go and my doctor tell me um that I can but I don't know because I just wanna know is 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 that gonna make me worse but they have told me but it gonna my eyes are not getting no better when get worse anyway. And so I just just do, and I don't know whether the the stops because I like to drink it all the time, and and then again I want to know something else too. I want to know 
want to know is is going to really make it work so fast or whatever. I just don't know right now. So what um so what particular eye problem um do you have, Joseph? Glaucoma. Glaucoma? Yes. And so what has your doctor um how's your doctor managing that right now? Well, my doctor managed and and I haven't really talked to her really talked to her about it, about the drinking, but I talked to her about glaucoma and she saying get no no uh, uh, better gonna get worse. So I got my drops, my eye drops that I take, you know what I'm saying, three times a day. Uh, and and I take my drops and so I don't really you know what I'm saying, I you do what she tell me to do. But I had never really really have never re- ever talked to her about about the drinking the beer. About drinking? Yes. So would that make it worse or faster? Okay, so Dr. Agarwal? So, so from what I heard about the question, um, he has glaucoma and is wondering about some uh, treatment options and maybe if some lifestyle factors affect the treatment. Um, So first of all, you know, like we talked about, glaucoma is very prevalent, leading cause of blindness. And often, depending on what type of glaucoma you have, the onset can sort of be insidious. You know, it's, it's slow, it's painless, and you may not know if you have it and how far advanced it is until you do get in to see your eye, eye care provider and get a, you know, a clinical exam and get some testing done to determine if it's affecting your nerve and your visual field. Um, typically, we will start with medication treatment. So th- these are going to be eye drops you put in your eyes. Basically, there's about four to five categories of drops that we use, and generally they work very well. Now, if that doesn't work, um, depending on how much damage you may have to your optic nerve already, or if you have vision, visual field loss, then you may qualify for a laser treatment that's done in the office, uh, laser treatment to your eyes to help sort of open up um, the plumbing in the eye. It's really, it's, it's really sort of a plumbing uh, issue. You know, the plumbing in your eyes is what helps control the pressure in your eye. And depending on if your pressure is high or low, you may be more pro- predisposed to have glaucoma. So these lasers help open that up. And if it's, if it's a little more advanced and not amenable to laser treatment, then surgery can be an option as well. But surgery has, you know, risks and benefits and uh, the surgery isn't always to um, cure it. There is no cure necessarily, but to treat it and to keep things from getting worse, not necessarily to improve them. Um, So depending on, you know, where you fall in that spectrum, those are all options for treatment. Now, There are other things that we do in life that do affect your pressure um, in your eyes. So there's things that cause your pressure to go up. Like if you're squeezing your eyes, you're crying a lot when your eye pressure is getting checked, we'll get a falsely high reading of your pressure. If you got a fever, if you got thyroid issues, if you're on certain drugs like, you know, LSD, steroids, those will all increase your pressure as well. Things that will decrease your eye pressure, um, exercise, you know, aerobic exercise is good. Um, if you're pregnant, that automatically has a little effect on lowering your eye pressure. And then certain drugs like alcohol, heroin, marijuana, those all help reduce eye pressure as well. Um, of course, there's no doctor that will prescribe alcohol or marijuana to you to specifically lower your eye pressure. Um, but having that on board, if that is something, you know, that's going on, that can certainly lower your eye pressure. 
So it won't accelerate. Because I think his question was, was drinking going to make it worse and make it worse faster? And so the answer is probably not, right? Probably, probably not. Probably not. But, that's, <laughs> but, 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 there are but, but we know that, that alcohol consumption is something that you have to really be mindful about and how much you consume because that can increase your risk for other kinds of complications yes. and problems. Yes. And one of the things that you said very early was that you had mentioned to your doctor about your drinking. So I do believe that, you know, and that's part of your social history. It is pertinent. Um, and it's not so that a doctor can be judgy and point the finger and wag it at you and, you know, treat you like a child. But um, when people are consuming alcohol, alcohol consumption is an important part of your medical history history and it can influence other parts of your body and other health issues. So that is something that I would encourage you to share with your healthcare provider, your physician, even if they don't ask you. Um, just like just like we ask about smoking and alcohol, sometimes people might get focused and skip over those things. It is perfectly okay for you to share that because that is a, it is something that's important and it can influence the medications that are prescribed to you because some of them will interact with alcohol. It can influence um, the way that your body metabolizes or breaks down um, other medications or breaks down other compounds. So that is very important to let someone know. And it's something that, you know, might encourage your doctor to check up on you a little bit more frequently. And the other part is sometimes drinking can get to be a problem. And um, so the other good thing is to have another person who can kind of be an accountability partner with you to help make sure that your drinking doesn't escalate to a place where it ends up being problematic for you, for the people around you, and also negative for your health. But thanks so much for your call. We've got one more person on the phone line, and we've got about two more two more minutes left in the broadcast. Beckett is calling us from Poplarville. Beckett, you've been so patient. Um, good morning, and what's your question? we got about two minutes left. Good morning, good morning. I've uh, just been having a problem lately with my eyes. I'll have just this intense pain. It feels like there's an eyelash or something in it. I try to check it. There's nothing visible in it, and all that really helps is, putting a cool cloth over my eye and just sitting in the dark for a while. But it's happened a few different times in both eyes, so it's not just a, a one-eye thing. And I didn't know if it was a pressure problem or what, because I do have hypertension. So, again, going to be hard to diagnose over the radio, but what you're describing sounds to me like there's some sort of local irritation in your eyes. Typically, um, I will see that in patients that have some sort of surface disease, you know, whether it's the cornea, the front part of the eye is not quite as healthy. Like if you've ever had an injury to your eye in the past, then the, the layers of your cornea just react differently and you can get what's called recurrent corneal erosions, for example, where the um, cornea responds to different things. You get eye pain, sensitivity to light, a little more tearing, and sometimes some scarring over time that can affect your vision. Um, or if there's some, you know, your eyelid, your eyelid glands are a little plugged, we have something called blepharitis, where a lot of that gunk that gets plugged in the glands pours over onto the surface of the eye and causes irritation, causes that what we call foreign body sensation, like you feel like something is in your eye. Um, so if you haven't had it checked out, I would recommend getting it checked out. You could even see an ophthalmologist and see if you have any sort of surface eye disease that is contributing to this recurrent pain that you're having. Because depending on what you have, there's certainly some treatment options for you. Awesome. Thanks so much for that. 
Um, so Dr. Agarwal, you said there were a couple of things that you wanted to be the take home messages for people. We've had a great time today, covered a lot of ground. So just to give folks um, a, one or two little takeaways about glaucoma really quickly before we close out. So, you know, number one is just how prevalent it is. It's the second leading cause of blindness after cataracts and cataracts are treatable. Glaucoma is not curable. Um, and then just knowing just the racial breakdown, you know, it's a leading cause of irreversible blindness in African-Americans. I think just knowing that information and knowing that um, as individuals, we could be so affected by it and it's so prevalent, it's very important to stay on top of your eye health and get in to see an optometrist or ophthalmologist when you can and when it's safe to do so. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. That was right on time. Um, today's Southern Remedy was produced and engineered by Jay White. Um, for Dr. Agarwal and Dr. Brown in Abstentia, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy for Women. Um, hoping you guys enjoy a safe and healthy weekend. NPR is here and now is next on MPB Think Radio. <laughs>